was this morning. And turn to Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now it's open. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together uh, in this place and, and to worship you, to sing praise to your name. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come around your word and to glean some truths from it this morning. And Lord, I pray that this morning as a priest, you would empower me through the Holy Spirit. Lord, you would give me wisdom and guidance from on high. There be your words and your thoughts. Lord, you would give us understanding of your word. May you teach us through your word. And may we uh, leave today singing your praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Acts chapter 13 um, introduces to us the age of missions, if you like. This is where the missionary journeys begin. Uh, the church at Jerusalem now fades into the shadows, and the church at Antioch uh, comes to the fore, uh, takes the limelight, if you like. Uh, it becomes the new center of operations, particularly in the book of Acts. From this point onwards, everything centers around the church at Antioch. Uh, it becomes the center for these missionary endeavors. And likewise, Peter now drops out of sight. Okay, we said that in chapter 12. That was really the last time we were going to sort of see Peter in Acts. Okay, uh, he sort of drops out of sight now. And Paul comes into uh, focus from this point onwards. Now, Paul and Barnabas become the first missionaries to be sent out by a local church. Now, we often speak of Paul's three missionary journeys, and the, the first one begins here in Acts chapter 13. And the passage before us describes um, the first ever planned missionary journey overseas. Okay, the first ever endeavor to take the gospel um, overseas and, and to reach uh, the larger Gentile world for the Lord. And it makes sense that this first missionary journey begins um, from the church at Antioch. See, when we consider the, the beginnings of that church, you know, if you remember, the church at Antioch began because of uh, Jews who were fleeing persecution in Jerusalem. They fed, uh, fled from Jerusalem and they, they went up to Antioch and some of them reached out to the Gentiles. They preached unto uh, the Gentile people there and they got saved and a church was formed. You know, those ones who fled persecution and preached the gospel, they were in, in themselves, in essence, they were missionaries, weren't they? Okay? They were missionaries. They took the gospel to a new region. You see, the difference here in Acts chapter 13 is that this is the first time, if you like, we see a conscious, deliberate decision by a church to send men forth to preach the truth okay? in a, a foreign land, in a new place. And over the next two chapters, chapter 13 and 14, Luke describes for us Paul's first missionary journey. And he highlights uh, the main uh, centers, the main places where he ministered, okay, or the, the main 
places of interest, if you like. And there are six different cities that are mentioned. And Luke describes the, the events in each of these cities. And it begins and ends with Antioch. Okay? And, and this morning we're only going to be able to look at the first two of these locations. Okay? So we see first of all this morning Antioch and we have here the decision. Okay? Antioch and the decision. Let's just read again verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church, that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with, the, uh, with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work, for unto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so the passage begins here in Antioch. Okay, that's, that's the first location. It starts in Antioch, starts at the church in Antioch. As we said in the introduction, Jerusalem has now faded from the limelight. It was the center of ministry. Okay? Peter was the key apostle. But things change in Acts chapter 13. Um, the location now is Antioch, and Paul is, uh, if you like, the new leader. Okay? And as Luke focuses our attention here on the church at Antioch, he lists for us here five key men who are ministering in this location. And these men are described to us here as being prophets and teachers. It says, now they were in the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers. If you remember back in chapter 11, uh, we saw this idea of prophets ministering in the early church. Just turn back to Acts chapter 11 with me and verse 27. Acts chapter 11, verse 27, it says, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which they did, uh, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so in chapter 11 there we have... Uh, these prophets mentioned okay and we we looked at them we looked at uh, who are these men what was their role in the early church and we saw that these prophets like Agabus who's named there for us these prophets played an important key role in the early church both in the the foretelling of future events okay they were given some foreknowledge by the Lord but also in the forth telling of the scriptures they would expound the word of God for the people. And Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, which we looked at when we looked at chapter 11, Ephesians 2 verse 20 tells us that the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and prophets. Okay, they were, they were grouped with the apostles. So these prophets had an important role in the early church. Okay, and here in Acts chapter 13, we're given the names of some of these men, some of these prophets and teachers who are laying the foundation, if you like, uh, for the church there at Antioch. Okay. Um, and the first of these men, so let's just quickly look at these five men. The first of these men is none other than Barnabas. Okay, we've seen Barnabas plenty of times already throughout the course of the book of Acts, haven't we? Okay. This is the same Barnabas we've seen mentioned earlier. Uh, Barnabas arrived in Antioch after he was sent there by the church at Jerusalem. Okay. Remember when things started to take off in Antioch, the church at Jerusalem, they said, let's send someone to investigate, and Barnabas is the man that they send. Okay? He went up there to see the work, 
and he ended up staying there. Okay, uh, chapter eleven, verse twenty-five. Uh, we'll start in verse twenty-two. Sorry, chapter eleven, verse twenty-two. It says, "Then tidings of these things came to the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he was come and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all." Uh, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarshish for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Okay, so Barnabas arrived in the city of Antioch because he was sent there by Jerusalem. Okay. And he ended up staying there. He ended up getting Saul to come and help too. And they stayed there for a year, ministering to the people. At the end of chapter 11, we see him sent back to Jerusalem with the, the gift for the church, to help the church. And so evidently, by the time we come to chapter 13, he's back again in Antioch. Okay, he's come back to this city, to this church. And he's ministering in the church. The second man, the second man we see mentioned here is Simeon, that was called Niger. He's called Niger. Now this nickname is a Latin word, okay, and it means dark complexion. Okay? That is what the word means, okay, and it wasn't a derogative term. He was given this nickname because that's what they did, okay. They just called him Simeon and they called him Niger, okay. Um, and it's, it, he was given this name because it's believed he was of African heritage. Okay? As I said, it wasn't in a racist way, okay, it wasn't a derogative term, okay, it was just simply to identify this man, okay? They identified him, Simeon, who is called Niger, okay? It's also speculated that this Simeon may be the same one who carried the cross of Christ, okay? If you go back to Mark chapter 15 with me. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse... Just start back in verse 19 of Mark 15. It says, And they smote him on the head with the reed, and to spit upon him, and bound the knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple, uh, took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Okay, it's speculated that. This Simon or Simeon here, the Cyrenian, is this same man. Okay, and there's a few reasons that commentators give, um, mainly because his sons are mentioned there, Alexander and Rufus, and Paul uh, later on uh, addresses Rufus in the book of Romans, and there seems to be that this family came to the Lord. Okay, and so it's believed that possibly this is the same man. Again, it's speculation, but okay, it's speculation that he is the same man. That's Simon or Simeon. He was called Niger. The third man we have here is Lucius. Okay. <coughs> Sorry, Lucius of Cyrene. Okay, it's believed that Lucius was probably one of the founding members of the church. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, just quickly, it says this, Acts chapter 11, verse 20, it says, And some of them uh, were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Remember when they fled Jerusalem, the ones who actually preached and reached out to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, were from Cyprus and Cyrene. Okay? 
And that's where this man, Lucius, is from. And so it's believed that he possibly is one of these uh, founding members of the church, which is why he's got a prominent role within the church. Okay? Um, and so it's believed he's a founding member, and he's still there, he's still ministering in the church uh, these years later in Acts chapter 13. The fourth man, man mentioned here is Manaean. Okay, it says that Manaean was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, um, Herod the Tetrarch here, this is Herod Antipas. Just so you can identify the names. This is Herod Antipas. Okay, um, And this man Manaean here, his name means comforter. Basically, this name was given to men, okay, or boys I should say, who were of the same age as royal princes and grew up in the court with um, the king, okay, or the future king, the prince, okay. And so basically, what this name tells us, and what it tells us by being by it saying that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, basically this tells us that he was at least a childhood friend of Herod Antipas. Okay, he grew up with him. It is even possible that he's the foster brother of Herod. Okay, so much more than just growing up with him, he actually grew up in his house as a foster brother with Herod. Antipas, so he knows him intimately. That's the point here. That's what Luke's trying to point out to us. Okay, that Manaean knows Herod Antipas intimately. Okay, and for point of reference here, Herod Antipas is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Okay, he's the one who put John the Baptist to death. He's also the one that Christ stood before when he was on trial. It's Herod Antipas. Okay, and so it's amazing, isn't it? You've got these two men who grew up together. One is totally opposed to God uh, at every turn, killing you know, John the Baptist and putting Christ on trial and he's involved in going against the Lord. And then on the other hand, you've got Manaean, who becomes a prominent Christian leader in the church in Antioch. It just shows the grace of God, doesn't it? Okay, two men had a similar, similar upbringing and, and ended up with two totally different uh, paths in life. We have a great contrast between the two men. And the final man mentioned here, of course, is Saul, okay? um, who would soon be known to us as Paul. That's what it says in verse 9 there. It says, then Saul, who is also called Paul. Okay? And so we have these five men. And these five men are said to be prophets and teachers in the church there at Antioch. And the reason that Luke identifies these five men, if you like, is because he wants to make, make it clear that there was numerous qualified men who could have done the job that's about to be undertaken. Okay, he's making it clear that there's, there's five men, at least within this church, who the Lord could have used for this missionary journey. Okay, there's these five men who are actively working in the church. They're, they're laying the foundation for the church. They're establishing the people in the doctrine. They're teaching. It's not just Barnabas and Saul. There's others as well okay, who are actively serving the Lord. And in verse 2, we're now told that as they're fulfilling this role, as they're ministering in the church, ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit makes it known unto them His will. Okay, it says in verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Okay? So they're in this church and they're fulfilling their role, these five men. They're teaching, they're preaching, they're fulfilling their ministry. And as they're doing this, the Holy Ghost speaks unto them. Under them and revealing them unto them his will. And you know, we're not told here how the Holy Ghost spoke to them, but we assume that because some of these men are prophets, 
that probably he spoke through one of them. Okay, he revealed it to one of the prophets here, and the prophet speaks unto the group, um, the will of the Holy Spirit, the will of God. But the message from God here is that they are to separate Barnabas and Saul for the work that he has called them to. And the work, of course, here is a missionary service. That's what he's calling them to, isn't it? It's, it's to be missionaries, to, to go forth, take the gospel message unto foreign lands. And the point here is that it's not the church who chose them. Yeah, that's the key here. You see, it's not the church who chose them. They had five men at least who were qualified. But it's not the church who chose. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God who chose these men, and then the church sent them forth. You see, they were sent forth by the church after there was a definite call from God upon their lives. You know, by the same token, it wasn't Saul and Barnabas who chose themselves to this either. Again, it was a call from God upon their lives. God chose them from among these five to be the ones who would go forth and serve. You know, Saul, he had already been called by God to do this, hadn't he? You know, go back to Acts chapter 9 with me. Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, we have God speaking to Ananias. This is after the Lord's met Saul on the road to Damascus. Okay, it says in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, Saul was already called by God. It was already clear this was the, this is what God had separated him unto, to preach unto the Gentiles. When the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, he made this clear. And now here in Acts chapter 13, the Lord makes it clear that it's time to go. Now it's time to fulfill that role. Okay? You know, there was a period of time, Darren mentioned this Sunday school this morning, there was at least three years after he gets saved where he's in the wilderness. Okay, then he goes down to Jerusalem and then he's off in Tarshish and it's possible he was there for another seven years. So at least ten years has gone by and then he's in Antioch for at least a year before the Lord finally says, all right, Saul, it's time to go. See, he knew what God's will is, but he still had to wait for God's timing, didn't he? He had to wait for God to say it's time to depart, it's time to enter the work. You know, Barnabas now is told to go with him. And so the two men, Saul and Barnabas, are called by God for this ministry. And then in verse 3, we're told that after further fasting and praying, the church sends them forth. Okay, verse 3, it says, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now here we see the church recognizing the call of God upon the lives of these two men. And they lay hands upon them and they send them forth. As I said earlier, the church didn't just randomly choose. They didn't just randomly choose from those who were capable. Rather, that they recognized God's call upon the life of these two men and then sent them forth. And the laying on of hands here is all about the church acknowledging that fact, acknowledging the Spirit's call upon their lives, and it's the church identifying with them and blessing them as they go forth. You know, what we have here in these first three verses is a, a pattern, if you like. It's a pattern for us as a church as to how we are to send forth men and women for the work. You see, it's not our responsibility as a church to choose who we send forth. 
but rather it's our responsibility to acknowledge the call of God on someone's life and then to send them forth and partner with them as we send them forth. Now, this is indeed what we did with Pastor Brendan, wasn't it? Pastor Brendan, when we sent him forth to go and work in Lismore, you know, it was clear that God had separated him for the work of the ministry. That was clear. It was clear that God had called him. And so as a church, we acknowledged that call and we commissioned him to go forth. We partnered with him as we sent him forth to the ministry. You see, that's the church's responsibility. In any missionary endeavor, it's our responsibility to be assured that those we send forth have already been called and sent by the Spirit before we send them forth, we commission them to the ministry. So we have here in Antioch the decision to send these two forth to the ministry because the Spirit chose them. Second, secondly, here this morning, we come to the city of Paphos. Paphos, and here we see the deceiver. The deceiver. This is from verse 4 down to verse 12. Let's just read it. it. says, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. When they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with uh, the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul, and desired to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. And Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt not thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. And thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist in the darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. The second major city that Luke now focuses his attention on is Paphos and the events that take place there. See, upon being sent forth from Antioch, Saul and Barnabas now travel down to Seleucia and from there they catch a ship across to Cyprus that's what it says there in verse 4 so they being uh, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed on Seleucia and from thence they sailed to Cyprus now Cyprus if you remember that's where Barnabas is from that's his home land Acts chapter 4 verse 36 just quickly Acts chapter 4 verse 36 it says and Joseph who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus. Okay, so Cyprus is where he's from. It's where he grew up. It's his homeland. And so their first point of ministry is to go back where Barnabas is from. And this island here is located about 160 kilometers from Antioch. Okay, Um, you go down to the coast, first of all, and then you catch a ship and go out to uh, Cyprus. And I'm told that they, when they first arrive on the island, they preach the word in the synagogues at Salamis. Okay, verse 5, And when they were in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. You know, Luke doesn't give us much details here about what happens in Salamis. 
He just simply says they preached. They arrive in, in Salamis and he says they preached the word in the synagogues. And so we assume that people got saved. We assume that maybe a work was started, but Luke really doesn't tell us any more than simply they preached in the synagogues. The only other point of note from verse 5 is that John, Mark, is with them. Okay, it says the end of the verse there, and they had also John, uh, John Mark to their minister. Okay, it's the only other point of note there from verse 5, that John Mark is with them on this journey. And from Salamis, they then depart. They go west across the island, and they come to Paphos. Okay, it says in verse 6, And when they had gone through the isle under Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. You know, Luke now spends a considerable amount of verses talking about the events here in Paphos. Okay? Um, it's here in this city that Saul and Barnabas first encounter persecution. First encounter, not persecution, sorry, opposition. That's the first time they're opposed on this particular journey. And they're opposed here by this man who is a sorcerer. Okay, verse 6, it says, They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar Jesus. So we're told this, this man that opposes them is called Bar Jesus. And this name means son of Jesus, okay, or son of Joshua. And so we're told that he's a Jewish man. We're also told that he's a false prophet and a sorcerer, which is a really weird combination. It's a really strange combination to read of a Jew who is a false prophet and a sorcerer. Okay, you see a lot of Jews who are false prophets. You don't see many Jews who are sorcerers. Because, you know, Jews usually shunned demonic activities. It wasn't something the Jews wanted to be involved in. But evidently, this Jewish man here is mixed up in the occult. He's mixed up in demonic power here of some sort. That's why he's said here to be a sorcerer. In verse 9, he's given the name Alamus, which means sorcerer. Okay, it says in verse, sorry, verse 8, but Alamus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation. He's given this name. Luke, Luke just simply calls him that. He says he's just sorcerer. You get the sense he doesn't want to call him by Jesus anymore. You know, he doesn't want to keep saying he's the son of Jesus because he's not. You know? And so he, he doesn't want to keep using that name. He just calls him Alamus here, the sorcerer. And this man, we're told in verse 7, is part of the company of the governor on the island. Okay, it says in verse 7, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. So it says he was with the deputy of the country. In other words, he's part of the entourage okay, of um, the, the governor on the island. So he's part of his inner circle. He, he ministers to the, to the governor of the island. The governor trusts him, I guess, trusts his judgment. And so he's, he's got an in, if you like, with this ruler. And we're told here that this man, Sergius Paulus, is a prudent man. In other words, he's an intelligent man. And he's someone who you know, liked to obtain more knowledge. He liked to listen and to uh, gain more understanding of things. And because of this, he sends for Barnabas and Saul, and he wants to hear the gospel for himself. He wants to hear the message directly from them. Now, obviously, he'd heard about their ministry on the island, hadn't he? He'd heard that they'd been preaching in the synagogues. Perhaps someone in his court had been 
um, in one of those synagogues and heard the message and brought back snippets of that message to him. But he'd heard somehow of what's taking place and he wants to hear it for himself. He wants to hear about this Jesus that they're talking about, this message they are declaring. You know what we have here is a man who's seeking for the truth, don't we? And we have someone who is, his heart is open to the truth. He's, he's open and ready to receive. He's hungry. He's inviting Saul and Barnabas. He's saying, come and teach me. Come and tell me what this, this message is all about. He's a man who is ready for the Lord to do a work. You know, the devil, he immediately understands this. The devil, he knows that Sergius Paulus is ready to listen. So the devil immediately seeks to put a stop to the work. Verse uh, nine, uh, nine there. Sorry, yeah. <clears throat> verse, <laughs> verse eight of this. Sorry, I've got the wrong verse in my notes. Verse eight. It says, "But Alimus the sorcerer, for his name by inter- uh, sorry, his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith." Immediately we see here that Alimus the sorcerer he speaks up in opposition. Straight away, you've got Solomonas. They've come and they've given. This man, Sergius Paulus, the gospel message. And straight away, this man is there and he's saying it's rubbish. He's opposing the truth. He's opposing them. He's withstanding Saul and Barnabas. He's seeking, as it says at the end of the verse, to turn the deputy, the governor, away from the faith. He's actively trying to steer him from the truth. Now, perhaps this man knew that his position in the court was in danger if Sergius Paulus got saved. He probably knew, hey, if he gets saved, I'm not going to have a job anymore. He's not going to listen to me. But either way, it shouldn't surprise us that this man, who is effectively the servant of the devil, that's what he is, he's involved in demonic powers, the occult. He is a servant of the devil. It shouldn't surprise us that this man is actively seeking to stop someone from getting saved. It shouldn't surprise us one bit. You know, even today we face opposition to the truth, don't we? We face opposition to the truth when the gospel message is preached. Because the devil doesn't want people to get saved. The devil is actively trying to to hinder the message of the Lord. To distract and turn people who hear it away from the truth. You know, it always seems to be that when the most important part of a gospel message comes up, there's a distraction. There always seems to be a distraction of some kind. To get people who need to hear it, to get their attention away from it and on something else. You know, make no mistake, the devil is actively working against the law, against the gospel. He will do what he can and use any means possible to distract people from hearing and believing the truth. You know, the devil also has many deceivers like this man here. That's what Alimus here is, isn't it? He's a deceiver. He's a false teacher. You know, the devil, he has many deceivers who are, by their false doctrine, leading men and women away from the truth and leading them straight to hell. You know, Christ described the Pharisees as doing this very thing. Go to Matthew 23 with me. Matthew 23 and verse 15, Christ says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, if you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. 
And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. You know, Christ said it about the Pharisees, didn't he? And their teaching. He said, you go with all these lengths to make a proselyte. When you make him a proselyte, you make him twofold the child of hell more than yourselves. You're condemning them by your false doctrine. You know, this is exactly what the cults do today, isn't it? This is exactly what all false religions do today. And there's many in the world, is there not? But they're all the servants of the devil. You know, that's what they are. You know, they may not all say that they're Satan worshippers or something like that, and there are those as well. But they're all the worshippers of the devil. They're all serving him. They're all leading men and women away from the truth and deceiving them, so they're going straight to hell. They're going away from the only means of saving them. And that's exactly what Alamus is doing here. That's exactly what he's doing. He's seeking to stop the governor from believing the truth. You know, Paul, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, he immediately recognizes Alamus for who he is. In verse 9 we read, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? You know, his name may have been Bar-Jesus, but he was anything but the son of Jesus, was he? He was the son of the devil, the child of the devil. And Saul, Paul here, is not backwards in saying it. He was the enemy of God. He was seeking to pervert the ways of God. He was a deceiver. You know, the question may be asked, did Alamus know this about himself? Well, probably not. He was probably deceived himself. He probably thought he was right in his opposition, just like the Pharisees did. He was probably deceived himself. But the fact of the matter is that he was a servant of the devil. He was opposing the work of the Lord. You know, verse 11 goes on to tell us that Paul then cursed this man in the name of the Lord. Verse 11 there, it says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun, for a season. Paul declares here in judgment for his sin that this man is going to be blind for a period of time. And immediately God judges him. Immediately God strike, struck Elymas with blindness. And he has to get someone to lead him by the hand. The end of verse 11 there it says, And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. You know, God judged this one who stood against his will. This one who opposed the truth. This one who was deceiving others. God judged him. And with the opposition now removed, we're told in verse 12, gloriously, the deputy gets saved. The governor gets saved. It says in verse 12, Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed. Being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. That's the wonderful thing here, isn't it? Even after this opposition, even after the, the devil has tried to hinder the work of the Lord, the man still gets saved. You see, in the end, God's work was done. The devil may have held up the work. He might have disrupted the work. He might have slowed it down, made it a bit harder. But in the end, he couldn't stop the work of the Lord, could he? He couldn't stop the power of the gospel. You see, God's will was done as Sergius Paulus here gets saved. Beloved, even today, with all the opposition that we face, 
from the devil and from his servants, we need to remember that our God is more powerful than them all. Our God is more powerful than them all, and, and the gospel is more powerful. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Yeah, they may disrupt the work. They may make the word of the Lord harder. But in the end, God's will will be done. God's will will be done. You know, when opposition does come, we need to, like Paul and Barnabas, recognize it for what it is and then stand firm upon the truth. You know, we may not be able to call for blindness upon our enemies. You know, we can pray for the Lord to remove the opposition, can't we? We might not be able to call for them to be blind, but we can pray for the Lord to remove the opposition, to remove the obstacle that's hindering someone from seeing the truth. We can pray for the Lord to overcome that opposition so that men and women might hear and receive the truth. Spurgeon, a great preacher, he said that we should not be surprised or shaken by opposition because wherever there is likely to be great success... The open door and the opposing adversaries will both be found. If there are no adversaries, you may fear that there will be no success. That's a really good quote. You see, there will be opposition. If there is hearts that are ready, if there is an open door, we can be sure that the enemy is going to be there trying to stop it. But our God is greater than the Lord. And God's will will be done. Well, but opposition will come, but we must, in faith, Continue to faithfully preach and teach, and God will give the increase. Let's close the word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for this beginning, this glimpse at the, the first missionary journey of Saul and Barnabas. We thank you for the, the church in Antioch, and Lord, the fact that they recognized the call of God upon the lives of these two men and sent them forth. We thank you for their work, our Lord, in Paphos, and Lord, the, the governor being saved, and Lord, the fact that you can overcome any obstacle, any opposition. Lord, may you help us to remember that as we go forth this week, as we take the message of the truth with us, may we understand that no obstacle is too great for you. No opposition is too great. And may, Lord, we just stand firm in the truth, and may we faithfully declare the truth unto those around us, we pray. In Jesus' name.